Thank you for remaining standing as we hear the reading of God's Word, which comes this morning from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Turn there with me if you have your copy of the Word with you as I read. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, how excellent is your name in all the earth. How glorious are the truths of your word. As we come to your word now, we stand in need of help and in need of light that we may see more clearly who you are. Therefore, we ask that you grant your Holy Spirit in full measure this morning to illumine the preaching and the hearing of your word and to give us ears to hear with understanding. Open the eyes of our minds that we can behold the glory of Christ and see him more clearly as the true light of the world. This we pray with confidence, with assurance of his finished work and in his glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. So we are continuing now this morning the series that we started on the I Am's of Jesus. We began some time back with the statement found near the end of John chapter 8 where Jesus states, Before Abraham was, I am. In that statement, Jesus so emphatically declared his deity, identifying himself as ego imi, I am who I am, that the, G- the Jews took up stones to throw at him. We then moved to John chapter 6 and looked at the first of the formal I am statements of Jesus, I am the bread of life. After today's sermon on I am the light of the world, Lord willing, we will cover each of the I am passages in the order we encounter them in John's gospel. I am the sheep gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And concluding with, I am the true vine. In each of the I am statements, Jesus is declaring his deity and reaching back into Exodus 3 where Moses stood at the burning bush 
and heard the self-identifying words of God who told Moses to tell the people when they ask, what is the name of God that sent him to tell them, I am who I am sent you. It is my sincere hope that as we spend this time on these passages, we come away with a more doctrinally sound understanding of at least one aspect of the Trinity, such that we know, not just intellectually, but we hold a sure conviction that Jesus was the Lord God incarnate. And we dispel any lingering thoughts in our minds that perhaps Jesus was just a preeminent teacher or rabbi. We need to hold this conviction so tight that we can come alongside C.S. Lewis, who is often quoted in, in teaching this conviction, as he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Then Lewis adds, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. It has been said that these I am statements form a theological framework or backbone to John's gospel. As we have already seen, John's gospel is rich with legal courtroom testimony language. In his gospel, he is making a case for who Jesus is, and the star witness is Jesus himself. So let us now turn our attention to the text this morning. But before we do that, where are we going with this message? As we consider I am the light of the world, we will be looking at this passage from two perspectives. First, we will take a look at how light is used in the whole of Scripture and see that this statement is a fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. Secondly, we will zoom in and take a closer look and focus on the light of gospel, on light in John's gospel and see the context of when, where, and why Jesus chose to reveal himself as the light of the world at that particular point in time and place. So without further introduction, let's get to that first point and begin an exploration of how light is used in Scripture. Now please bear with me here. I will try not to be tedious, but I will be reading several passages, and as I do so, try to begin associating these texts with Jesus' declaration, I am the light of the world. First, let's note that Scripture begins and ends with a fundamentally important understanding and revelation of light and its relationship to the Godhead. 
In the very opening verses of Genesis 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. We know that God does nothing haphazardly or flippantly or without satisfying His specific purposes. So therefore, we can confidently conclude that light as the first creative act is of particular importance. And we are to take note of this as we meditate upon God's Word. And if we turn to the end of God's Word, we see that great consummation scene that begins in Revelation 21 and concludes in Revelation 22. John records at the beginning of Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, where the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and their God. And now moving to verses 21 through 25 that we meditated on at the beginning of the service. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illumined it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Isn't that simply marvelous? And as we continue into chapter 22, and he showed me a pure river of water, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. In the new heaven and the new earth, there is no need of the sun or the moon to shine because the glory of the Lord illuminates it. The Lamb is its light. All the nations of those who are saved shall walk in it. We could stop right there and declare Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light both physically and spiritually. There will be no need for the sun or the moon and all the saved people of the earth will walk in that light. God gives the light. 
We are saved by the light and we eternally walk in the light. There is no more sickness or death, no more tears, no more sorrow or pain. The former things are part of the darkness that have been utterly wiped away by the light of the world. And as the old gospel tune goes, what a day, glorious day that will be. And I'm looking over here at Christy. I know she can just hear it, right? What a day, glorious day that will be. I'm not going to put you on the spot here to sing that for us. We see light associated with our God, not only in creation and recreation, but also wherever we read of His glory or His glorious manifestation or presence. In Exodus 33, Moses asked the Lord to show him His glory, and the Lord put him in a cleft of the rock and covers him with His hand, lest he should die from the brightness of His radiant glory. For no one shall see the face of God and live. In the first chapter of Ezekiel, the prophet is shown a scene in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ seated upon a throne in the brightness of His glory. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Fire, brightness. Wherever the glory of the Lord is described in Scripture, it is done so with these sorts of bright light terms. In Psalm 104, we read that the Lord covers Himself with light as a garment. In fact, light is referenced at least 24 times in the Psalms, all of them positively correlated to the attributes of God. Turning now to Isaiah, we find those messianic prophecies that connect the I am the light of the world statement of Jesus to His being the fulfillment. In Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, we read, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first He lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. In Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So then in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew documents the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry and looking to this, that as the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 9. And then we turn to that most glorious and explicit messianic prophecy in Isaiah 42. And we read, taking care to note the pronouns and of whom and to whom the Lord is speaking. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth the justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. 
nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. The servant verses in verses 1 through 4 is Christ, the elect one. He and his here is referring, referring to Jesus. But then at verse 5 of Isaiah 42, the Lord began speaking directly to Jesus. Thus says, the God, says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will uphold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. And just one more of those messianic passages from Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 5. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Here we see the Lord speaking. With the, we see the incarnation. We see His birth foretold. And we see again that Christ is given as a light to the Gentiles. Note too, that the task of restoring the preserved of Israel would be too small a task for the Messiah. And so He is given the additional task of being a light to the Gentiles to the whole world, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the Word of God given through His prophet Isaiah. Messiah will be the light of the world. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, He is making explicit the claim to be the Messiah. Turning now very briefly to the New Testament, we continue to see the association of light with the glory of God. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' deity broke through His humanity as it were and His face shone like the sun and His clothes became white as the light. Or consider Paul's Damascus Road experience where he falls to the ground after seeing a light from heaven and then he speaks to Jesus. Not seeing Jesus, just the light. Paul later, toward the conclusion of his first letter to Timothy, where he is exhorting Timothy to keep the faith, spontaneously slips into doxology, exulting in Christ as the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He also declares right there that Jesus dwells in unapproachable light. In the opening verses of Hebrews, 
we read God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds, who be in the brightness of His glory, in the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And finally, in James 1 and 1 John 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And John writes, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God is the father of lights. He is light. If we walk in His light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us all from sin. What a beautiful picture of corporate connectedness we enjoy as we walk in the light together as believers in Him. It would be difficult to read Scripture and not understand that Jesus is the light of the world. Have you ever noticed that when we are referring to someone's salvation, we often say that they have seen the light? How true. Let's shift gears a bit now and turn our attention to the second point of the message this morning and to John's Gospel, where we find that the theme of light continues to play an important role in our understanding. John mentions light directly 16 times in his Gospel but nowhere more profound than in his opening prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. As John opens his gospel, he transports us back to eternity past, back before creation itself. All things were created through Jesus. He possesses all life and light. And by his word, he speaks into the dark, chaotic void, and there is light. Through the ages past, God spoke to His people in various ways by His prophets who tell of the light. But in the fullness of time, God spoke to His people in the person of Jesus. And those who were in darkness, even though it was God incarnate speaking to them, they did not comprehend nor apprehend. And thanks be to God, have not overcome the light. Continuing with John's prologue, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. 
He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. John the Baptist is sent to bear witness of the light of Jesus Himself. He was the one, according to prophecy, that would prepare the way for the Lord and be a voice crying in the wilderness. But even though the way was prepared for Christ by John the Baptist, it was not a smooth or easy road for Jesus. Throughout Jesus' ministry, He was met with opposition, ridicule, and scorn. And the reason is given to us in John chapter 3. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Clearly, Jesus is the light and all that are in him are drawn to the light and love that light. But those who love darkness hate the light and turn away from it or else their evil deeds would be exposed. Going back now to our text from this morning, we see something interesting in chapter 8 in verse 20 where John records for us that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury as He taught in the temple. Why does Jesus tell us that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury. I'm glad you asked. And so, we have our picture. If you just be able to refer to it there, you'll see that there's called out. The... No, you don't. I haven't gotten there yet. But this is uh, the temple as it was in Jesus' day. Um, to go back and answer this question, why, why did, were we told here in verse 20 that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury? We need to actually go back to John chapter 7, to the beginning there, and uh, try to discern what the setting and the time of year was. So in verse 2 of chapter 7, we see that the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. This tells us a very important bit of context that will keep us and will help us to see with greater clarity the impact that Jesus had his claim to be the light of the the world would have on those listening to him. The Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths, was one of the three mandatory pilgrimage feasts specified in the Old Testament and was called to commemorate the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert and lived in temporary booths, usually constructed of branches and leaves. It was a feast that lasted seven days. The Jewish historian Alfred Edersheim writes the most that the most glorious festival of all festive seasons in Israel was the Feast of Tabernacles. It fell at that time of year when the hearts of the people would be naturally full of thankfulness, gladness, and expectancy. All the crops had long been stored, and now all fruits were also gathered. The vintage passed, and the land only awaited the softening and refreshment of the latter rain to prepare it for a new crop. It was appropriate that when the commencement of the harvest had been consecrated by offering the first ripe sheaf of barley and the full end gathering of the corn by the two wave loaves, there should now be a harvest of thankfulness and of gladness unto the Lord. As an aside, the Feast of Tabernacles occurs at the end of September or the beginning of October, so right about this time of year. 
And now as we're in chapter 7, we move down to verse 14, we read, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So this great feast where thousands upon thousands of Jews are gathered has been going on for a couple of days now. And Jesus goes up into the temple to teach where he continues to do this day by day until we get to verse 37 of chapter 7 and read, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now there's a lot to be uh, explored in that verse, but that's not the point right now. There is something interesting going on, however, when Jesus makes this declaration here. But one of the things that makes this difficult for us to understand is that we're not part of that Jewish tradition there, was, there, are, there are two practices that occurred during the Feast of Tabernacles that are not recorded in Scripture, but part of the oral tradition handed down from Moses. One was a special commandment of the willow, which we won't go into, and the other was a water libation. Each morning there was a solemn procession from the Temple Mount to the Pool of Siloam for a pitcher of water. A priest would fill a gold pitcher with water as the people sang together from Isaiah 12, 3, which reads, Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This procession would return to the temple mount with trumpets blasting in great fanfare. There the priest would pour the water into a silver basin by the altar of burnt offering each day for the duration of the feast. It is on to this scene that Jesus came crying out to dry, parched, thirsty souls living in the wilderness of this world and with no water that gives life to the soul. The people had forsaken the fountain of living water and constructed their own cisterns and systems of law-keeping, of doing good works. And yet these religious activities failed to satisfy their spiritual thirst. God had placed in them Into this spiritually dry desert, Jesus came and stood and cried out and offered them a drink from Himself. He offered them living water that they might live spiritually, even as their ancestors were kept alive physically in the Old Testament after receiving physical water. And Jesus takes this moment to connect all the dots for them. The prophecy in Isaiah 12 the rock that provided the water in the wilderness, and the daily procession of the water libation at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he draws attention to himself as the source of living water. So Jesus spoke these words, I am the light of the world and the treasury of the temple. Why is that important? So as you you can take a look there, if you haven't done so already, you will note there's a diagram at the back of your, uh, your liturgy there, and you may want to refer to it to look more close so as we try to understand the setting here. One of the things that people did when they came to the temple was give money. And there was a large courtyard in that temple that had 13 coin receptacles around the area. And this is where we find the treasury. The treasury was located in the court of women. The court of the women, which is on your diagram, I believe. Gentiles could not come into the court of the women lest they uh, defile the, the offering. 
only Jews or duly processed proselytes could come into the court of women. It was in the court of the women that the widow gave her last two coins. There were coin receptacles that were designated for particular purposes around the court of the women. There was a place to bring your temple tax that everyone had to pay. Another place for women to purchase two pigeons to purify themselves from childbearing. Another place to purchase wood for the altar. And yet another place to pay for the golden, the upkeep of the golden vessels in the temple and so on. But we still haven't made the connection to the light. What we need to know is that at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, large candle stands were set up all throughout the court of the women. Maybe even larger than Jonathan's candelabra. I'm, I'm not quite sure. According to the historians, there were very many of these candle stands, and they lit the candles every night and let them burn all night long. As the candlelight from the great number of candles radiated above the walls of the temple throughout the night, it was said to be like a diamond shining in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. These candles were lit to commemorate the Lord leading the people through the wilderness in a pillar of fire and smoke. It is into this setting that Jesus once again seizes the moment, connects the dots, and declares, I am the light of the world. It is not to reveal, it is not revealed in the word, whether it was at the beginning during the lighting of these candles, or perhaps at the end of the day when they were extinguishing the candles, or perhaps even in the midst of the glory of their blaze overnight. But it must have been a profound scene, as, as you can imagine. Jesus calls out, and he is calling the people to follow him even as their ancestors followed God in the pillar of fire. To be a follower is to give yourself totally to Christ. To say with the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Or as Isaiah reveals, the Lord shall be an everlasting light. Follow me, Jesus said, and I'll lead you to the heavenly promised land. I'll be the light, the true light. It is interesting to note that the rabbis even declared that Messiah's name is light. They knew what Isaiah was saying. So Jesus is claiming not only to be the I am, not only to be God who is the true light, but to be the Messiah prophesied. The people were captivated. They understood what Jesus was saying and who he was claiming to be. The Pharisees certainly understood and they accused him of lying. In verse 13, they say that he is lying because Jesus is bearing witness of himself. And everyone knows that the law states that truth is established on the testimony of two witnesses. But Jesus responds to this legal accusation saying, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And the Pharisees respond with, Where is your father? Perhaps they had heard that Jesus' father Joseph had long ago died 
But Jesus delivers the truth that must have been, re- been received as a stinging insult. You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You see? The Pharisees prided themselves in knowing God better than anyone else. And Jesus tells them that they did not know God at all. Sometimes, I wonder, I wonder how much of a pharisaical spirit we cling to. Do we pride ourselves in holding a particular understanding of doctrine? Do we? Has that doctrine worked its way down from our minds and into our hearts? And has it made its way from our hearts all the way to our feet and to our fingertips? If not, then the exhortation is to let the light of the world so shine in your life that it expels all the darkness, all of the fear, all of the doubt, all of the besetting sin that plagues your life, and let the fiery brightness of Christ warm your hearts and walk no more in darkness as you follow Him. For He truly is the light of the world. Our merciful Father, our glorious Father in heaven, it is with thankful hearts that we consider the words of Christ our Savior. We thank You for the light of the world. We thank you for calling us unto yourself and for the assurance that you will never cast out those whom you have called. And we thank you for giving us ears to hear your truth and for calling us out of darkness and into the light of Christ our Savior in whom there is no darkness at all. O Lord, we pray that as you have called us to be children of light, that you would also grant us hearts fully committed to you knowing the full assurance of forgiveness in Christ, and not wavering under the temptation to sin, but rather being equipped with the light of the gospel as we engage the enemy in battle, and always yearning for the light, the light of your beauty and goodness and truth, ever eager to forsake darkness in all of its forms, always knowing that where there is darkness, Christ is not there. But it is Christ that we long for, His truth and His light. Help us to follow Him. For it is in His glorious and mighty name we pray. Amen.